0: G'day guys, that's a good welcome. I'm going to pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in these last days You have spoken to us most wonderfully and finally in Your Son Jesus and we thank You that we meet Him in the Scriptures Uh, and so we pray tonight as we look at this wonderful story of His resurrection uh, that it will strengthen our faith if there are people here who do not yet trust in Jesus, we pray that tonight might be the night where they come to believe. Uh, but in all these things, Father, help us to set aside the things that might distract us so we can understand Your Word together now. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our world now, uh, news spreads fast. It spreads very differently to how it used to spread back in the time of Jesus. So, these days, something happens, someone records it on their phone, And before you know it, it's all over the internet. You know, just just a theoretical example, someone might innocently be on Invest singing along with Taylor Swift and and before they know it, it's cast out over the internet. Uh, That's just the way our world works now. Uh, In a primitive way, that actually started, most people sort of put the first event where all the world watched something together, the 50th anniversary of that was this year, was uh, Man Walking on the Moon. For the first time, sort of live television not everyone in the world but people right across all the continents of the earth sat at the same time whatever time it was where they were a- and watched man walk on the moon that was sort of the first time that happened for my generation it was something far less positive for my generation it was september 11. Uh, i remember victoria and i on a wednesday night back in 2001 we'd had a bible study in our home all the people had gone home and we thought we'll just turn on the tv for a bit before we go to bed And uh, we turn it on, Channel 9, and we think, oh, they've got like some bad Bruce Willis movie set in New York on here. And then we turn to Channel 7, but it's exactly the same picture. And then Channel 2, and it's exactly the same picture. And you have live in front of your eyes, evil happening on your television screen. Uh, And that was sort of the dawning of that era for many of us. Uh, But that's the way news works now, instant live coverage, and even though we have that, there's still skeptics. So there's still people and there might be someone here tonight you please try and convince someone else after church, if this is you, not me uh, who believe that man hasn't walked on the moon, that it was all filmed in a Hollywood film studio. as I say, convince someone else, not me, after church. Uh, that might be what you believe. Uh, people want to dispute even things they see on a screen now, because we know people can manufacture it, and it might not be real. You see, but that is not how news has spread for most of history. For most of history, news has spread word of mouth. Uh, That's the way it worked. And, And so, I see something and I want to share it with you and if you don't believe it, you ask someone else who saw it and over time, you weigh it up and you decide, gee, I think that might have been true. Well, last week, we saw the first part of the news of the resurrection of Jesus. So, let's look back to the first half of chapter 20 that we looked at with Mike last week we looked at that first Sunday in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, and we saw that the tomb was empty. That was the fact of last week's passage, the tomb was empty, Jesus had risen, God had raised Him from the dead. And you sort of think that might be the climax but the problem is, no one knew about it yet. Mary Magdalene was the only person who, who had seen Jesus alive and she couldn't sort of take a selfie to prove it to her friends. John and Peter had gone to the tomb, but uh, they had seen that it was empty, and it said, it was really enigmatic, so last week, it says, John believed, but what did he believe? Did he believe Jesus had risen? Did he believe that the tomb was empty, like he'd been told? It was only Mary Magdalene who had seen Jesus face to face at this point. Now, Mary had gone and told the rest of the disciples, she'd said, I've seen the Lord, but you can imagine them thinking, is she crazy? Uh, Has she had a mental breakdown? Uh, and the fact that she was a woman counted against her. It's not right, it was just reality. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony just didn't count. Which is actually a supporting reason for the trustworthiness of the Gospels and the trustworthiness of these accounts, because if you were making this up, you would not make it up and have a woman as the person who first saw Jesus risen. Because straight away, people in the ancient world, well, I'm not believing that. But you see, it's actually really powerful evidence because you only include that if that's what happened. And so, what we see today, as we start tonight's passage, is on the first night, the rest of the disciples were far from convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. And even if they sort of believed it, even if they were sort of thinking about it, they had no idea what it meant. So, come with me now to verse 19 and it says, in the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. So, this is the Sunday night, this is the the day of Jesus' resurrection, they've heard the strange news from Mary, Uh, John and Peter have confirmed that the tomb is empty, at least, but they're not jumping for joy, they're not like out on street corners saying, Jesus is risen, come and believe the good news, it's more like they don't know what to make of it and you notice they're they're still hiding, they're still behind locked doors, they're still concerned that the Jewish leaders will do to them what they did to Jesus. I think this actually shows you that these were not just gullible people, sort of ready to believe anything. You know, uh, often you hear people say, unlike us who are rational, scientific, modern people, these, these ancient people would believe anything. They were just as sceptical as you would be, because dead people do not rise from the dead. And dead people haven't risen from the dead at any point in history. There's nothing different about them or or about us. But then comes the incredible moment, verse 19 again. Then Jesus came, stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, He showed them His hands and His side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. See, in the end, for these first disciples, it was only when they saw the risen Jesus standing in the middle of that room, That's what convinced them. That's the point where they said, yes, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, there's five wonderful things I want to point out from this first little story about where Jesus appeared and I've printed them on your outline. So, take your outline, you'll see the five little wonderful points I want to draw out Uh, and the first one is this, it was really clear that this was the real physical Jesus, not a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. This wasn't a, a mass hallucination. This was the physical Jesus back to life. That's why He pointed them to His hands and, and, and to His side. He, he was saying, I am, I am the real Jesus here. This is the real, physical, human Jesus. Yes, He could do miracles, so He could appear in the middle of a, of a locked room. But If you think about it, He could do that before He was raised from the dead. There's other points where He appears or disappears, uh, even before He was resurrected. But the point is, He was a physical person, not a ghost. We're going to see that in chapter 21 over the next couple of weeks, where He actually eats with the disciples and the food doesn't sort of drop out to the ground or anything like that, like it would with a ghost. It's physical Jesus. Second point is, and this flows from that, it's clearly the same Jesus. So, He could show them His scars and when they looked at Him, they knew, this is Jesus, this is our Lord who is risen which I think is actually really wonderful when you think about it, and I've been thinking about this all week, because what the risen Jesus is, is what we will be when He returns. So, it's not like Jesus rose from the dead and, and that's the resurrection. We're looking forward to a greater resurrection day where we will be raised like Him, where death will be defeated for us. Uh, and the thing is, when you think about that, we don't quite know what it's going to be like when we're part of this new creation, this perfect, sinless new creation, there's lots of things we don't know about our physical resurrection bodies. If you ever want to lead your gospel team off on a, on a tangent, just sort of start talking about this. Will, will it be me when I was a little lighter than I am now? Will, will it be me when I had more hair on my head? Will, Will it be me before I was breaking bottles in the sandpit when I was five and got a scar on my hand? You, you know, that, or will that scar be there? Is it part of me? It, it raises all sorts of questions, which the Bible doesn't answer. But what you do know, and you see it here is, when we get there, we will recognise one another, which I think is wonderful. You, you won't just say, there is my Lord Jesus, you, you, you will say, there is Mark. There, there is Brody. There, you know, there is that person I encourage. There is that person I share the gospel. There's the person who encouraged me, which I think is wonderful. We won't just see Jesus face to face. We'll be able to see one another there and share life together. Third thing to point out: Do you see how Jesus greeted them? He says, "Peace to you." Now, in one sense, that is just the normal Jewish greeting. It's it's the equivalent of G'day, or How are you? or something like that. But the, the Jewish greeting has much more power than our normal greeting, it's the word shalom, uh, which, which sort of carries this idea of, all God's blessings be upon you. Uh, but you can't help but think here, Jesus is saying that with even more significance, because you notice how He repeats it? Just look down at verse 21. So, I wonder if it's a bit like, you know when you say to someone, how are you? And they go, yeah, we'll go, all right. And then you go, no, 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 how are you? And you mean, I I really want to know, I actually care, I wasn't just being formal, you know. Well, it's like here, Jesus says, peace to you, but then He says it again, peace to you. And I think He is saying, now at last you have peace with God. I have died for your sins, I've risen from the grave, I have now repaired that horrible rift that existed between you and God. So, if you trust in Me, if you trust in Me... You used to be God's enemies, that's what we were, God's enemies because of our sin but now because of my death and resurrection you can be God's forgiven children. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon Him. That's what Jesus is saying, I think, in this little greeting. I think it's really important to hear us, that is what Jesus says to me and you if we trust in Him and in His death and resurrection. Jesus says, peace to you, that is the wonderful news of the gospel. That's what it is to believe in the risen Jesus, to have peace with God. Fourth point, and that is, but that's not all Jesus says to them and to us. Come down to verse 21 again. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is really important. Jesus says, now I've made you at peace with God, but that's not all he says to us. The peace I'm bringing is not just for you, because now I'm sending you out to continue my work. If you know my peace, then go and share it. As he puts it in Matthew's Gospel, go and make disciples of all nations. We know this is true, if you know the risen Jesus, then you cannot keep Him to yourself. If you know the risen Jesus, you have to share Him with others. If you know the forgiveness He has won for you, you want other people to know that forgiveness. I think that's behind what he says at verse 23. Look down at verse 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this is a really tricky verse because a lot of people have taken it throughout history to mean that Peter and the other disciples get to decide who is forgiven and who isn't. So, you know when people make jokes about, when I get to heaven and Peter will be at the pearly gates and, you know, or they draw cartoons and there's a picture of Peter standing at the gates of heaven, that's where they get this idea from and certainly that's how the Roman Catholic Church have taken it. The Roman Catholic Church have taught, if the Pope says you're in, you're in, if the Pope says you're out, you're out, which is problematic for us Protestants. Now, there are all sorts of problems with that. Uh, and I can't go into all of that here, but needless to say, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, Uh, because this is tied to what He is sending us to do, and what He was sending them to do back then. You see, He's saying, as we go out and preach the Gospel, we are the ones who are responsible in some way for people either being forgiven for their sins, or having their sins retained to them. You see, when people respond in faith, as we preach the Gospel, as we go out and continue Jesus' mission, their sins are forgiven. And when people reject that message, their sins are retained to them and they are still under God's judgment. See, I think here, Jesus is showing us the incredible responsibility we have. Yes, it is God who forgives, but it's now us, God's people, the church, it's now us who dispense God's forgiveness to the world. In that sense, people's forgiveness or not forgiveness is now in our hands, because that's the way they'll hear how to be forgiven, through the people of God, which is incredibly daunting, isn't it? Do you feel that responsibility? I feel that responsibility. For some reason, for me, this responsibility hits me when I'm on trains. I don't know why, but when I get on a crowded train at Carlton Station or at Cogger Station, and I sit, and I look at all these people, and I sort of think, all these people, sheep without a shepherd, so few of these people know God's forgiveness. It just dawns on me, what responsibility we have as the people Jesus has said, now continue my work, share forgiveness with these people. Which brings us though, to the fifth and final wonderful truth of this first little part and that is, Jesus doesn't leave us to do it alone, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, Luke verse 22, says, after saying this, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is so wonderful, it's not like Jesus says, peace to you, continue my work and I'll go up and sit in heaven and watch you guys get on with it. It's not like Jesus says, you guys go and preach my gospel to a sceptical world who will often reject it and I'll watch from the heavens with my feet up. Jesus says, "No, no, no, in Matthew's gospel, He says, I will be with you to the very end of this age. Here, He says, I will give you my Holy Spirit because that's how Jesus is with us, through His Holy Spirit. My Spirit will be at work in you, strengthening you. My Spirit will be at work in you, encouraging you and it will be particularly strengthening you and encouraging you to preach My Gospel, to share the peace you have come to know. Now, what Jesus does here raises questions for people Uh, and you might have this question in your head, if you've recently read the book of Acts or the other Gospels, you might think, but hang on, it wasn't actually until about 50 days later, at, at Pentecost, that they received the Holy Spirit. You know, when, in Acts, when the flames and the wind and all that sort of stuff come and then, then they're able to share the Gospel with boldness and that's when they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost uh, and that is absolutely right. And certainly, for the next few weeks until Pentecost, they don't act like people who have the Holy Spirit. They don't act like people who are confident believers in Jesus and they certainly haven't worked out how to tell other people about Jesus. They just keep hanging around in locked rooms and and sort of staying away from people who might hurt them. They're still frightened but then once they get the Spirit at Pentecost, they grasp it all and and they become this incredible evangelistic team. So, I actually think that suggests Jesus wasn't actually giving them the Spirit here Uh, and in fact, earlier in John, He'd said, you won't receive the Spirit until after I've ascended, until after I've gone to the Father. So I think, here, what Jesus is doing is giving them like a graphic sermon illustration. What He's doing is, He's teaching them who the Spirit is. Just be thankful, I don't give you this sermon illustration, there's a reason we have a gap that far, because my breath gets really bad when I talk too much, you know, I'm not going to come and breathe in your face, unless you want me to, later. But that's what Jesus is doing, He's sort of saying, when you get the Holy Spirit, I want you to understand Him. See, so so when you receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, I want you to look back at this moment and say, that is what this is. This is the life-giving breath of Jesus being breathed into me. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's who the Holy Spirit is. This is that gift that Jesus promised us all those days ago. And the wonderful thing is, you have the Spirit of Christ in you if you are someone who trusts in Jesus. Jesus has breathed His life-giving breath into you, if you are someone who believes in Him. In the same way, and I think you're meant to see the parallel, in the same way that God breathed life into the first human being, Adam, well, Jesus has breathed life into you, if you are someone who trusts in Him. That's the wonderful promise He's making here. And that means that the same Spirit is at work in you, giving you the courage you need to stand up and believe in Jesus. And the same Spirit is at work in you, giving you the courage to share Jesus with others. That's the point of this, that Jesus is always with us by His Spirit. He hasn't left us with this job to do without His help. He is here with us and in us by His Spirit. Well, there's five wonderful truths we learn from that first encounter of the disciples with the risen Jesus. Now, let's move on and we're going to more quickly move through the more famous second part of our passage tonight. Growing up, uh, I loved cricket. I still love cricket, I've just worked out not to mention it too often in sermons because there's a large proportion of you that don't love cricket and switch off as soon as they start talking about cricket. But bear with me on this, growing up I loved cricket and uh, I was in the cricket team at school, this is in Brisbane, Uh, and I remember one day I had to miss training because I had to go to the Maths Olympiad, that's the type of guy I am. That's the all-rounder, you know. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I was already in enough trouble with the cricket team for going to the Mass Olympiad, if you, if you understand boys' schools for 13 or 14-year-olds. Anyway, I got back to school the next day and the other guys in the cricket team were just buzzing and they said, Phil, you are not going to believe what happened while you're away, uh, while you were at the Mass Olympiad. Uh, the Australian cricket team came and trained on our oval while we were training And we got to spend the whole afternoon with them and and we got to meet Alan Border and Greg Ritchie and David Boone. Those may may mean nothing to most of you, but for for cricketers, that was a great moment. Uh, Now, to miss out on meeting the Australian cricket team was bad enough, but to miss out because I was at the Mass Olympiad was really horrible. But even worse then was hearing them talk about it for the next however long. And at first, I I said, no, it didn't really happen, but then they could show me their bats that had Alan Border's signature and David Boone's signature. So, I had to stop being a sceptic and actually believe and then put up with it for however long, being told, you weren't here when the Australian cricket team came. That is what it must have been like for Thomas, don't you think? The most famous Thomas in history. He wasn't there that Sunday night. I don't know why. I don't think he was at a Mass Olympiad. He, he, (laughs) He didn't see Jesus, but now, all the other disciples can't stop talking about it. Luke verse 25, they kept telling him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas wasn't upset that he missed out. He, he just didn't believe it. Thomas is the most famous sceptic of all time. Even people who have never read their Bible, who don't know anything about Jesus, don't know anything about the Bible, know what you mean when you say, he's a doubting Thomas. Because it's just become part of the English language. It means to be a sceptic. Uh, I want to say to people whose name is Thomas, remember that Thomas doesn't doesn't remain a sceptic. He actually becomes a great hero of the faith, so good on you if your name's Thomas. But uh, wouldn't you be sceptical too, though, if your friends tell you, we've seen a man raised from the dead who you saw crucified? Uh, So, don't be too hard on Thomas. So, anyway, in his doubt, Thomas demands proof. Look at verse 25. But he said to them, "'If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side,' I will never believe. As someone prone to making bold comments like that, that we later regret, I have a lot of empathy with Thomas. So, what happens? Well, eight days later, here they are again, locked in a room. This time, there's one difference. This time, Thomas is there with them as well. And again, suddenly, Jesus is there. And again, He says, peace to you. It's like, Jesus is doing a full-on action replay of everything he did the first time, just for Thomas's benefit, and then he turns to Thomas and shows how amazing he is that he was actually able to hear what Thomas had said. Look at verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and observe my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. And then what he says next is the most important sentence in this whole chapter, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And Thomas became a believer. We're not told whether he took up Jesus' invitation to put his hand in his side or touch his You can't imagine he did, you, you know, especially what he's given what he says next. Look at verse 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Now, just realise what an incredible thing that was for Thomas, for anyone to say. But for Thomas, a, a, a Jew, a faithful Jew, to say, this man in front of me is my Lord, it's the title for God, and then, this man in front of me is my God, that's incredible. Jesus, I don't just believe You've been raised from the dead, Jesus, I don't just believe that You are my Saviour, You are my Lord, You are the one I'm going to give my life to serve and somehow, in some incredible way, that Thomas didn't really fully understand it yet, Jesus, somehow, You are the God of the universe, you are God the son standing in front of me see the resurrection of jesus does a lot of things but one of them is it declares once and for all with power that jesus is the son of god and thomas recognized that and for us here that is what it is to be a christian i pray you are someone that is what it is to be a christian that's what it is to stop being an unbeliever and become a believer It's to believe Jesus has died for my sins. It's to believe Jesus is risen from the dead and then to believe and to declare publicly, Jesus is my Lord and Jesus is my God. That's what it is to be a Christian, to follow Thomas. Now, of course, the thing is, Jesus' call there to Thomas was not just for Thomas. Jesus says to every person on this earth, do not be an unbeliever. The only way to be saved is to believe in me. If you remain in unbelief, you are still in your sins. But believe in me and be saved. That is what Jesus says, trust in me, come and find peace with God by believing in me. Because that was much easier for Thomas, wasn't it, than for us? I mean, Thomas had Jesus standing there in front of him, in the flesh, it is much harder for us today, 2,000 years removed, we having 2,000 years away from seeing Jesus in the flesh. How much more do people today say, show me and I'll believe? I'm sure you've had people say that to you. How much more today do people say, I'll believe it if I see it. Show me the risen Jesus and then I'll believe He's raised from the dead. And Jesus recognizes this. Look at what He says in verse 29. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed those who believe without seeing are blessed. I think Jesus is gently rebuking Thomas here. He's saying, Thomas, you should not have needed this and especially, Thomas, you're about to go and preach the gospel to people who aren't going to get to see me. You should have believed because I told you this was going to happen. I've been telling you this for three years that I'm going to rise from the dead. Your, Your brothers and sisters told you I was risen you should have believed without seeing. The incredible thing is, Thomas then did go and preach the Gospel. Fairly good, you know, reliable history, says Thomas went as far as India, preaching the Gospel. And there are still Christians in India today who who say that their ancestors heard the Gospel through Thomas. Pretty incredible, isn't it? But in rebuking Thomas, Jesus says something wonderful to us. I think this is one of the most beautiful verses, Jesus is one of those moments where Jesus is effectively speaking right to us. It's like Jesus, even though He's talking back then, He's saying, I'm going to talk to St George North, 630 Church on a day in August and He says, how much more blessed are those people sitting there at snack in 2019 even than Thomas? How much more blessed are these people standing here, sitting here in this room, how much more blessed are we who have not demanded to touch my scars? But have still believed. See, Jesus is saying to us, again, something we've seen all through John's Gospel, we are more blessed even than Thomas, even than Peter, even than John, even than any of the disciples because we have believed without seeing. But just because we haven't seen the risen Jesus doesn't mean we've just sort of closed our eyes and believed. I think that's what a lot of people think. They think, being a Christian is a matter of blind faith. And, and people have said this to me, they've, they've said, oh, I love the way, Phil, you can turn off your brain and just believe. You know, Phil, you seem to be reasonably intelligent but I, I love the way you, you can have faith but I'm, I'm too smart for that. Uh, they, they say, faith is, is setting aside reason, setting aside intellect and believing the impossible. Even some Christians seem to think that way. So I talked to Christians and Christians sort of say, yeah, yeah, I just believe but I don't know why. That's not the belief or the faith that Jesus is commanding here. Christian faith is not irrational, it's based on the evidence and that's the point John makes in these last couple of verses, look from verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and by believing you may have life in His name. So, you say, you don't just believe without any evidence, you believe because I've written down these eyewitness accounts for you and and we have four of them, we have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke and we have John written within the lifetime of these events and so that means Christian faith is not an irrational leap in the dark, it's an assessment of the evidence and then a decision to trust in it. And I want to say to you, the evidence for the resurrection, which in the end is what everything else stands or falls on, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all a waste of time, go home and watch whatever woeful television show He's on, you, you know. But I want to say to you, the evidence for the resurrection is incredibly strong, it's the reason I'm a Christian. 25 years ago, that was, the re- that was the thing that convinced me. Now, the thing is though, I can't prove the resurrection 100% for you, because you can't prove anything in history 100%. That's not the way history works. I can't prove to you 100% that Gallipoli happened and there are probably some, you know, crazy loonies who say it didn't happen, you, you know, and who want to convince you it didn't happen because they didn't see it. But I believe Gallipoli happened because I've read the books from eyewitnesses and I've looked at the evidence and I thought, there, there seems to be a lot of evidence that that happened. I can't prove to you 100% that Hitler killed millions of Jews and there are people who make a living out of denying that. But again, I look at the evidence from my witnesses and I believe that awful evil happened in Germany in the Second World War. And the evidence for the resurrection is compelling. As I say, it's what's convinced me to stop being an unbeliever and become a believer. See, when people say to me, how can you believe in the resurrection? I've stopped being defensive and I actually go on the offense. I say, well, you explain to me the empty tomb then because that's a fact of history. You explain to me why the Romans and the Jews didn't just produce a body and end this Christianity thing like that, before it got off the ground. See, the empty tomb is a fact of history, explain it to me. Can you explain to me why every one of these witnesses was willing to die, rather than just say it didn't happen? See, that's just a fact of history. So, so explain that to me with, a, with an alternative theory. Can you explain to me how this ragtag group Uh, of 11 Galilean misfits went from quivering messes to converting the world within a generation. That's a fact of history, explain it to me and I could go on and on. I don't say it to be arrogant and I try and say it with grace and humility but you see, the resurrection is actually the most obvious answer to these facts of history. I can't prove it 100% but that's because history doesn't work that way but I say to people who want to question the resurrection, tell me your alternative. Tell me your alternative theory based on the evidence. You you might have heard of a guy called Charles or Chuck Colson. He went to jail in the uh, 1970s because of the whole Watergate scandal, which is when an American president got thrown out of office for for corruption and that sort of thing, where he was kicked out Richard Nixon and Colson was part of the conspiracy. In prison, he became a Christian and the reason he went to jail is because he and his mates couldn't keep a lie eventually they turned on one another and dobbed one another in to try and get a better sort of plea bargain deal. And so, in, in jail, he became a Christian. And this is what he says about the evidence for the resurrection. Tom, can you put it up there? This is what he says. He says, it's a great photo too. He says, <laughs> I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. He could have added, 11 of the 12 were executed. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. See, he says, explain that to me, explain that fact of history to me. See, believing Jesus is not blind faith and don't let people tell you it is. It's not switching off the brain and leaping into the dark, it's believing on the basis of the evidence. That's why some of the smartest people in the world are Christians and some of the dumbest people in the world are Christians and some of the smartest people in the world are not Christians and some of the dumbest people in the world are not Christians. It's not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of weighing up the evidence and deciding, do you believe? But even so, Jesus knows that it's hard to believe without seeing. So, He says to us here, you are more blessed than the apostles, because you have believed on the basis of the testimony, not on the basis of sight. Well, for the majority of us here, I hope, looking at John's Gospel, has strengthened your faith in Jesus. That's the reason it was written. So, I hope, looking at John's Gospel, has strengthened your faith in Jesus. I hope it's helped you keep believing in Jesus. I hope it's helped you keep believing He is the Son of God who saved you. That is why John wrote this for us. But if you're here today and you've been sitting on the fence, or if you're here today and you would actually say, I am an unbeliever, perhaps, uh, I want to say to you, please hear Jesus's invitation. Jesus is saying to you tonight, don't be an unbeliever, become a believer. And if I might add to what Jesus says, there is an urgency to this. There is no use just sort of walking along saying, I'm agnostic. There is a certain point where you have to say, I will stop being an unbeliever and I will become a believer. And I want to invite you to do it tonight to seriously consider the evidence and believe. Pray with me at the end of this sermon and then come and talk to me afterwards. Because there is no more important decision for every person to make on this earth. Everything hangs on whether we believe in Jesus. Because it's only by believing in Jesus that we have life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful truth that Jesus is risen from the dead and You have declared Him with power to be the Son of God. And we thank You that by believing in Him, we have eternal life and we have peace with You. And we thank You for those of us who already believe in Jesus for the way this has strengthened our faith and encouraged us to keep trusting him. But we pray tonight for anyone here who has not yet made that decision, that tonight they might choose to put their trust in Jesus. And so come and find the forgiveness and come and find the peace that we too have found. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.